Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. And welcome to this edition of No Labels. And our guest this afternoon is someone who's been on the show before, but today um, we've asked Paula to come back and talk about something quite different. Paula, welcome to the show. Kia Thomas. Nice to be here again. And it's great to have you on the show again. So last time you were on the show, show, you were talking about your role at the Human Rights Commission. And today we've asked you to talk about your role um, and your involvement with the Paralympics. So, um, Paula, what was your, your role with the Paralympics this year? So I had a wonderful opportunity to be the chef de mission for the New Zealand Paralympic team that went to Tokyo. And a literal translation of chef de mission means head of mission. And so essentially it's the person who's responsible for the overall team, making sure that the environment in Tokyo was one where our athletes and support staff could be at their best and uh, you know, ensure that in this particular set of circumstances that our team remained safe from COVID and that everyone got to the start line and home safely. So it was a, a very challenging games, but also a really enjoyable one at which our athletes had an opportunity to thrive. So I took leave from my ordinary job, which is the disability rights commissioner with that broad mandate around protecting and promoting the human rights of disabled New Zealanders. Great and so this sounds a really interesting role and I think um, I should have said earlier we did actually have um, one of the guys who was involved with Paralympics on the show probably about a might have been just over a year ago um, and he'd been involved I think worked for ANZ Bank at the time and had been involved for a number of years and was telling us about the different sports that um, he'd been involved with but also his role but you obviously weren't there um, participating in the sporting activities um, I know you have done so in the past but can you tell us you know, a little more about your role and what that actually entailed on a sort of like day-to-day basis. Absolutely. So we had um, a team of 29 athletes and we had about 35 support staff. And so the responsibility was really on a a day-to-day basis, making sure, first of all, that the accommodation inside the village uh, was ready for our athletes. So we had the leadership team go over a little bit earlier. We set up the accommodation, made it look and feel like it was, um, you know, incorporating elements of New Zealand and hopefully made it a really welcoming environment for the team. And then in that first week, there's just, you know, there's a lot of admin involved from booking vehicles, picking up vehicles, making sure that we have all our sporting equipment where we need it, uh, unloading the container that was freighted over ahead of the games, which had a lot of our equipment in it. So quite a lot of hands-on practical and admin work in that first week before the bulk of the team arrived. And then, of course, one of the challenges that 
we were grappling with in those first few days was when New Zealand went into alert level four lockdown, we still had athletes uh, and staff spread throughout the country. And so there was an initial nervousness about how we would get the rest of the team out of New Zealand. But fortunately, that process in the end went quite smoothly and we we got everyone up to Japan safely and within those uh, level four rules. So once athletes start arriving, the role shifts very quickly to making sure that the coaches, physios, support staff have everything they need on a day-to-day basis to make sure that their athletes can do their final preparation really well. Um, One of my key roles is also to make sure that the leadership team, so that's the sports psych, the medical team, the um, nutrition, food prep and recovery team, um, the media team, that they had what they needed as well to uh, do their work. And so a lot of coordinating, communicating, making sure that um, people were well inducted into the village. So there were a lot of requirements around inducting people um, and with a particular emphasis this time on keeping people safe through COVID. So it's a really, it's a role which on the one hand is, you know, really about sort of pastoral care and looking after people right down to the nitty gritty of putting things on walls and making the team feel welcome. Right. So certainly um, we, we noticed some changes, obviously, with the games this time, with um, you know, what we did around the, the flag bearing, um, et cetera, um, and, and the sort of um, uh, parade at the, at the beginning, at the opening, and et cetera. Um, was that hard for the team with the changes that were made around that and trying to keep the team uh, safe? The team as a whole came into Japan, I think, with a really strong sense of wanting to stay safe from COVID. And a lot of prep work had gone into that. And I think everyone felt really privileged to be in Japan and have the opportunity to compete. So everyone came in with an attitude of really wanting to do the right thing. And it became really apparent to us that being at the opening and closing ceremonies did create a greater level of risk than, you know, ultimately we were prepared to accept just with the numbers and the transport and, you know, make it it's difficult in that sort of environment to socially distance. So in the end, the, the team accepted the decision, I thought, really well and, you know, got on with preparing. And we had a lovely ceremony ourselves inside the village to mark the opening of the games. So we wore our formal uniforms, we sung waiata, had some speeches, and really tried to mark the importance of the games opening ourselves to make up for not being at the official opening ceremony. And and I think, you know, for many of us um, back home, you know, we thought it was a great move and certainly was reinforced when we started to hear about some of the um, COVID cases that were popping up um, around the games. So I think you know, a lot of us were feeling quite relieved that uh, New Zealand, you know, yet again, you know, made the right right choice, right decision. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Paula, coming in, we hear different stories about you know 
um, international travel and, and what have you. But how how different was it when you landed in, in Tokyo um, to sort of traveling at any other time, getting from there to the village? You know, was there much difference involved or um, did you have to go through any extra um, checks, as it were? It was a really surreal experience, actually, even from departing New Zealand. So we were required to have three pre-departure COVID tests. We also wow. had 14 days of health monitoring. And then when we went through the international departure gates at Auckland Airport, you know, it was very, very quiet, not that usual buzz and hum that one expects to see at an airport. So that was the first real reminder, I guess, that international travel is quite different. And then going through Singapore airport, which was equally quiet, uh, was another reminder. Then when we arrived in Japan, we had some further requirements. So we had to do a saliva COVID test upon arrival. And then once they came back, negative we were then allowed to travel um, in a socially distanced way in a variety of vehicles through to the village so certainly um, there were those extra layers and, and at Japan uh, upon arrival you know we had to show the various sort of different documentations around our COVID tests and although it was not a requirement to be vaccinated um, our whole team was vaccinated and so you know we, we carried that paperwork with us as well just as a extra layer of, of precaution so certainly a lot more um, boxes to tick yeah. and a lot more involved from a health and safety perspective in terms of inducting the teams as they arrived in Japan and making sure that everybody was really familiar with the protocols that we had in place. Yeah, yeah. And and the village where the team stayed, how, how different or was it the same accommodation that was used for um, the Olympics prior to the Paralympics? Or were they yes. different? Oh, okay. The, so the Olympic village um, quickly becomes the Paralympic village once right. the Olympic Games Ends. And so one of the conditions of hosting the Olympic Games is that you also host the Paralympic Games. And so there's a lot of thought and consideration that goes in, in this case, by the Tokyo Organising Committee, who work really closely with the International Olympic Committee and also the International Paralympic Committee to make sure that you know things are designed with the Paralympic Games in mind and you, you know could certainly see that careful thought and planning so really the only thing that primarily changes is some of the signage and sometimes the event courses and things change a little bit in terms of distance or gradients of hills on cycling courses and things but primarily it, it's the same right Okay, now we're going to go with one of your songs. What are we going to go with first and why? Oh, gosh, let's go with Celine Dion. It's all coming back to me now and, since we're and, talking about the games coming back to me. <laughs> right, okay, let's go with Celine Dion. 
were nights when the wind was so cold that my body froze in bed if I just listened to it right outside the window. There were days when the sun was so cruel All the tears turned to dust And I just knew my eyes were drying up forever I finished crying in the instant that you left And I can't remember where or when or how And I banished every Just have to admit that it's all coming back to me when I touch you like this and I hold you like that. It's so hard to believe, but it's all coming back to me. It's all coming back, it's all coming back to me now. There were moments of gold and there were flashes of light. There were things I It's gone with the wind, but it's all coming back to 
forgive me all this If I forgive you all that We forgive and forget And it's all coming back to me When you see me like this And when I see you like that We see just what we want to see All coming back to me The flesh and the fantasies All coming back to me I can barely recall But it's all coming back to me Great. So, Paula, um, the games. So, what was one of your? Well, what were a couple of your highlights of the games? Oh gosh, there were many. I love the Paralympic Games because, to me, it, there's so much around inclusion, and you know, for me, getting involved in the Paralympic movement to begin with was all about trying to create equity through sport for disabled people and in particular young disabled people who I saw myself growing up excluded from participating in sport and so the Paralympic Games is at that elite level but you know people come through the grassroots of the sports system in New Zealand and I love seeing those opportunities for equity and inclusion and when you're at the Paralympic Games and when you, you know, particularly when you're inside the Paralympic Village, you are reminded in, you know, a very acute way every day that you are surrounded by um, your own community of, of disabled people. And so for me, that's just such a highlight um, where, you know, the majority of people are disabled, which is quite the opposite from you know, our yeah. usual experience on a day-to-day basis. So for me, that's a highlight. I think one of the other awesome highlights was just, you know, seeing how well our team performed in a set of really challenging circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not only the challenge of, you know, the various restrictions in Japan, but also not having the same level of international exposure to competition leading up to the Games. In fact, the Games were postponed. And so seeing our athletes get to the start line and produce some really great results, particularly with a number of people for whom this was their first games, I was just really thrilled with the performances. Yeah, yeah. And I think we were too. It was, and I think for for us back home, it was great to see you know, more coverage yet again of the of the games. Um, ideally, we'd love to see. You know, um, almost you know, twenty four seven coverage on on it on its own sports channel, not just for the Olympics but for the Paralympics as well. But it was great to see you know such coverage back here. And I understand from a, a report um, I was reading over the weekend that there was a, a 
huge number of New Zealanders tuned in to watch the games. Yes, I think the broadcast just, you know, continues to grow and evolve and, you know, certainly back in my day of competing, the the broadcast coverage, you know, was not quite what it is now and I think it's just been wonderful to see that improvement and, you know, Kiwis love sport and, you know, people will just tune in. We certainly um, saw a, you know, a lot of social media posts about people wanting to see more and I think, you know, that's just testament to the growth of the sport and, you know, the work of um, Paralympics New Zealand and their media team and the international broadcasting team. Um, so, you know, I just uh, hope that we continue to see that broadcast grow and grow. And it was great, of course, to have the daily highlights package that Attitude Pictures um you know, took the lead on and, yeah. and sort of doing that summary every day. So it's great. It is. And I think, you know, it just, you know, for me just shows, you know, the general public that, you know, disabled people, there are, you know, in, in many sense, no barriers. You know, the barriers are what others others create for us. Um, Absolutely. But, you know, here are these guys out there, whether it's, you know, you know, wheelchair rugby, whether it's, you know, high jumps, whatever it might be, participating in the same sorts of sports that everyone else is participating in. Um, yeah, Absolutely. so to me, it was and just great to see. That's right. And the broadcast is so important in terms of helping to shape attitudes around disability. You know, just thinking about the school age students that you know I've spoken to over the years and indeed spoke to before going to Tokyo and you know seeing them learn and understand a bit more about disability um, through the lens of the Paralympic Games is great we you know we want every opportunity we can to exactly. promote awareness of disability yep because with, without that promotion then you know people you know, it, people don't know and they don't want to ask because they're, they're too embarrassed in case they say the wrong thing. Um, but when we see disabled people participating, whether it's in sport, whether it's in employment or education, um, it just, you know, it's an awful way, but, you know, tries to normalise that we are no different to anybody else. We have the same dreams and aspirations. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Paula, um, what were some of the things that you sort of saw possibly uh, at the games that might be something that we could find a way to promote or bring to New Zealand in the way of accessibility? Wow, where do I start? So <laughs> because, you know, there is a long lead-in time to the games and the host nation you know, works with the International Paralympic Committee and many other key stakeholders to design the village and the venues and, you know, the legacy events and various things around the Games. That lead-in time, I think, you know, is really great for that concept of universal design that we talk a lot about in New Zealand around how do you design things 
for the greatest number of people. And so some of the things that I saw in the Paralympic Village, and if you can sort of imagine it, the Paralympic Village is like a, a little city. It has everything contained inside it that you need. And so if I think about the pathways and surfaces, you know, you've got pathways and surfaces and facilities that cater for a really broad range of impairment types. So people who are blind or have low vision, people in chairs, amputees, people who might be deaf, um, and in chairs that, you know, some are power chairs, some are, um, are not motorised power chairs, uh, people who use walkers. I mean, there's, there's, the range of impairments is so broad that what I love about the way in which the village is designed is there were little um, bus stops for um, these little uh, electric type vehicles that would come by and pick people up. And, you know, to me, everything just looked like it was designed with the disabled person in mind. So the ramp to the bus stop and then a nice even path between the stop and getting into the vehicle. There were, you know, spots available inside the vehicles for chairs. Um, then you have the very tactile um, surfaces for people who might use a cane or need some some way of of having a sense of direction of where where they're going through tactile equipment in the elevators you know there's flashing light for people who can't hear the lifts also talk for people who can't see there's braille on the lifts and inside the lifts then you go into the food dining hall and you know, the sanitizing um, machines are low enough for people of short stature, people in chairs, and then there's taller ones for others who, who might need them. Um, you know, things just really, is, as far as I, I could see, things really designed with disabled people in mind. And so did I see, you know, specific whiz-bang types of technologies or, or anything. Not that I could immediately observe, but I think the key lesson, and it's something I know, you know, many disability and advocates in New Zealand, including myself, argue for, is that whether you're building public spaces and places or you're building private homes or social housing, if you create intentionally with disabled people in mind, you create much better spaces and places for everyone. And to me, that was just so immediately obvious inside the village that it was designed with disabled people in mind. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably um, a number of us have had the same sorts of discussions when working with, you know, whether it's um, developers, whether it's local bodies, whatever, is that same message is if you build it right for disabled people, you build it right for everybody. But for whatever reason, uh, whether it's social housing, whether it's public transport, whatever it might be, or a, um, a new um, complex on the waterfront somewhere, um, we still think that, well, there's only a few people with, with disability, so we probably don't need to you know, worry too much. 
And the thing about universal design, right, is that you really are designing for the greatest number of people. You've, you know, we've got an ageing population in New Zealand, we've got 24% exactly. of our population are disabled, we've got families. So I think, you know, for me, just seeing the greater ease with which disabled people could manoeuvre around the village really made me feel excited on the one hand and, and frustrated on the other that we don't take a more deliberate, thoughtful design approach mm. around some of our public spaces and places. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm pleased you actually commented on that because I know it's certainly something you and I've spoken about and a, and a number of others have spoken about over the years um, is that whole concept of universal design and building it right the first time and getting it right and not having to go back and fix it afterwards or alter it to accommodate something that they hadn't thought of at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Paula, um, in the media recently, there's been some discussion around a promotional ad for Paralympics. And I don't know if anyone will have had a chance to see it yet, but can you tell us a little more about you know, what was behind the ad campaign, um, you know, what, what's its purpose, et cetera? Sure. I haven't been involved myself in it, and I'm sure Paralympics New Zealand uh, on their website and things will have further information. But my understanding is that the aim of the um, advertisement will see disabled athletes in commercial ads and opportunities as much as their non-disabled peers. Mm -hmm. And so the ad that is running at the moment in New Zealand includes four of our Paralympians, Scott Martlew, Anna Grimaldi, Nikita Howarth and Corey Peters. And one of the things that, you know, I guess, you know, I see in my work um, is that many organisations have that increasing priority on inclusion and diversity. And I know Paralympics New Zealand have been keen to see our Paralympians really sought as brand ambassadors and included in companies' marketing campaigns and commercials. And I think that's that's great, you know, 24% of our population are disabled and having that increased visibility of disabled people, including Paralympians, is really important in terms of promoting that diversity and inclusion, but also that role modelling for future generations so that disabled children can see disabled role models. And, you know, so much of what young people see is often through a screen. And so, you know, I think that this is just a, a really great ad, in, in my view, in terms of, of promoting that desire for that, you know, equal opportunity for disabled uh, athletes around those promotional opportunities so hopefully people take it up <laughs> and i think it, it is such an important issue you know um you know touching on the, the role models for example you know um i know myself you know there were a few blind people in my life who if i hadn't met them um they, they had a huge impact on the way um i understood life the way i did things 
um, the way I was able to you know, achieve a number of things. And without their sort of input or seeing what they were able to achieve, um, I think I probably would have been, you know, like so many others, um, you know, feeling that, you know, what, what is there in life for me sort of thing. Um, and I think, you know, for young kids today, you know, whether you're in the classroom and you and someone comes in and talks about rugby um, and, you know, and you're, you happen to be a great rugby player, you think as, as a kid and you think, wow, yeah, maybe if I practice a bit harder, you know, I might be able to do that because he talked about being at school and and it's the same for disabled kids growing up. They want to be able to be able to have, um, you know, pinups of um, of people who they can say, well, if they can do this, maybe I can give it a go and see if I can do this as well. Absolutely. You know, you, you're spot on there. Mm. I think role modelling is just so, so important. And I look forward to a time in New Zealand where, you know, we, we have great disabled role models uh, across all domains, you know, sport, the arts, academia, business, local government, central government. And, and of course, there are disabled people participating in those sectors now, but I, I think a really, in, in a really visible way where young disabled people can look across all of those areas and say, hey, I, I can do that. And I think when you're young and you're navigating your way through the world and you're thinking about your possibilities, role models are so, so important. And I certainly had role models in a wider disability sense growing up, but I, I didn't really have any in sport. And I, I guess that's why you know, part of me sort of wants to continue investing in the, the well, sorry, all of me wants to <laughs> continue investing in the Paralympic movement, but part yeah. of the reason um, for that, I think, is is just sharing with young people, um, you know, what what sport can do and how it can enhance um, people's lives and and demonstrate inclusion to a broader audience. And, and I think you know that hopefully this ad also will then encourage, um, you know, whether it's you know the the latest form of. Um, um, shampoo or whether it's um, yes. the, the newest TV on the market, whatever, but those ads starting to feature, you know, across um, section of the population and not just the, you know, the techie guy when it's a, a TV or the techie girl sort of thing, but, you know, yes. because we so often do see that with, with advertisements that it's aimed at a particular um, part of the market or uses a particular style of person um, but not across across the, the range of, of people in our society absolutely um, yeah so Paula where to from here for you obviously you're back at the commission um, catching up on on work but um, what else is involved for you with um, Paralympics moving forward gosh well um, in terms of my involvement with the Paralympic movement you know it's it's a movement and, and I call it a movement because it it is that it, it's about sport but it's about 
the power of inclusion. And so for me, being involved in the Paralympic movement is a lifelong commitment. And I imagine there'll be you know, a variety of ways that I can have input into that over the years. You know, certainly post this immediate games, um, there'll be some further debriefs and things that you know need to happen. And um, you know, thinking about how we can improve things um, before the next games in Paris, which is only, only three, years now, three years away. Um, but you know, I I was in Japan for three weeks, and then when I landed back in New Zealand and went into MIQ, I was sort of straight back into my commissioner work and, you know, catching up on things. And, of course, coming in at, at that time where, again, we're, you know, facing uh, particular, you know, new challenges around COVID and, and what that means for the disability community. And so it's been a really busy time since landing and being in MIQ and uh, Zooming with everyone, as is sort of <laughs> mostly what we're all doing now. Yes. And it's yeah. been wonderful to get back into the role, but also reflect on that really unique opportunity, I think, both to travel at this time in, in the world, but also to be part of the Paralympic Games and, and all that it stands for. Yeah, cool. So, Paula, what are we going to go out with today? What, what song are you choosing next to go out with? Uh, let's go for Elton John's Yellow Brick Road. I hope that's nothing to do with those yellow tactiles down the middle of the footpath in, in Tokyo. Ah, uh, well, now now that image is going to be etched in my um, memory forever. <laughs> well, we did it, used to have a version of it in Newmarket in Auckland as well, where they went down the middle of the footpath, and they were a nightmare for for a lot of pedestrians. Um, but thank, thank goodness we've got to a place now where we can use tactile indicators a lot more wisely. But um, Right, so Yellow Brick Road. Well, Paula, thanks for coming in. It's always great to have you on the show. And thanks for such a great insight to your role and life in the village for a few weeks. Uh, nui. Thanks, Thomas. <laughs> thanks. thanks, Paula. Bye. Bye.
program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.